Thank you, Amber, for helping prepare our hearts. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, where we're gathered together around the Word of God, and it's just so nice to be here. It, I'm not sure how your week goes, but I look forward to having this respite from life, the hecticness and that, and to gather with brothers and sisters who love the Lord and to sit under great preaching and excellent hymns. So I'm happy to be here. I hope you are too. Yes, somebody else is happy too. Um, just some quick announcements. There's only two that I want to highlight. It's not in the bulletin, but moms and dads, after the fellowship meal, we have youth choir practice. Am I correct with that? Yes. So there, the youth choir practice room is over an apartment, the apartment building, and it's number two. That's first floor on the right, and there are some colorful signs to lead you there. I hope you uh, can make it. While the young ones are in youth choir practice, we're going to show another installment of Tim Challey's DVD, and I forget the title, but it's great. And... If you guys in the sound room can pull the CD, if not, we're going to go to Australia with Tim. Because all I have is CD no, or DVD number two. I don't have number one because I think it's in a computer back there. I've already made the second announcement, but I hit it. We have a fellowship meal right after church. We're Baptists, so if you haven't come prepared to give food, come prepared to eat food. We have more than enough, so join us and enjoy the fellowship around the table. And that's it for announcements. You can read the rest in the bulletin. Now we're transitioned to God's Word, and I'm going to read from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. So follow with me if you want. I have no idea what page it is on, I'm at the age where I have to print it out in 24 font. Don't laugh, Rodney. Give it 20 years. Oh, 10 years. Okay, let's, let's look at God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, 
Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for that reading from the life of Christ. I want you to take a moment privately where you're at. We're going to worship Christ today. It's given us a good introduction into Jesus Christ, who indeed is the bread of life. Take a moment now privately to prepare your heart to worship Christ, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Father, what a great privilege it is for us to gather together as saints of God made holy by Jesus Christ. We can praise you never enough for sending the Son to live among us, to demonstrate your great power, even in this miraculous event, in the feeding as well as being at immediately on the other side of the sea. 
I pray, Father, that we would truly know who this prophet is that has come into the world. It is your Son, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to live among us. I pray, Father, that the reality of Jesus Christ, particularly as recorded here in your Holy Word, will speak to us in unique ways. We find ourselves in various circumstances, and I pray for those that are struggling with disease, illness, maybe difficulty in their work or their life, their relationships, whatever it might be that would take us away and distract us from you and our refuge ultimately in you. I pray, Father, that you would give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness that is only found in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that indeed our life would be characterized by working not just for those things that are part of our life and our responsibility, but ultimately for that which ultimately endures to eternal life, the, the grace that you have granted to us, the mercy that you have bestowed upon us to which we can distribute as well in the various relationships that we have in this life. We're thankful for your work, your work of divine grace in our own heart, giving us affections for you, motivating us to want to pick up our cross and follow you, to truly believe, to believe in Jesus Christ. I pray that there would be none outside here, and here's my voice, either in, within this fellowship or as recorded and presented later. May we all come to know Jesus Christ. May, may he be the source and substance of, our, of the center of our being. I pray, Father, for the little ones, that they would continually come to know this great truth and feed and feast on you. I pray that you bless us and receive our worship today of you. May you be honored and glorified in all that we do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand as we begin our singing here this morning to the Lord. And turn to number 257. We sang this hymn a while back, Cross of Jesus, Cross of Sorrow. Beautiful words. First and last uh, verses read, Cross of Jesus, Cross of Sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer, perfect God on thee has bled. 257. <clears throat>
128. Alas, and did my Savior believe. Revelations 1.8. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. 64, whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to ransom my soul.
Good morning. The scripture reading will be in page 918 in the Pew Bibles uh, from Acts chapter 10. I might have mentioned before that back when Patty and I were dating, we used to play a, a Bible game where the computer would choose a random verse somewhere in the Bible, and with that random verse, we'd have to think of a way to share the gospel from that verse as our home base. Now, we didn't want to take things out of context, but it was a good exercise because you should be able to, wherever you're at in the Bible, you're not that far away from Christ because it's a a Christ-centric book. So one of the the funniest times uh, from us uh, playing that game is when the computer gave us, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. From here uh, in this book. And it sounds funny to uh, preach the gospel from kill and eat, uh, but it is all about the gospel because, of course, Jesus changes things. And we've been seeing that as pastor has been taking us through the, the book of Hebrews. It's not that being Jewish is unimportant, and it's not that there was any problem with the law, but it was about Christ, and Christ had come, and uh, he is risen. And that did uh, change everything. And that's what this vision was partly about. And Peter even had trouble remembering this kind of a thing. If you read in Galatians, Paul had to correct him with uh, some of these uh, very kinds of issues. That's why we don't say necessarily that the apostles always inspire, uh, because people are, are fallible, but when they're writing scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, that scripture they write is inspired. It uh, reminds me of a friend of mine that was uh, my roommate in college, this large bear of a man from India. And when I came back from uh, Christmas break, I uh, said, oh, on New Year's Eve, I became a Christian. I am your brother now. Uh, but even after that, uh, he would struggle to uh, want to be able to eat a cheeseburger. It just felt, with uh, growing up in a Hindu society, it just didn't feel right, even though he knew in his mind uh, that uh, he was a Christian. And it could be hard to make those kinds of changes uh, in your brain after uh, living your whole life that way. But really, the context isn't just about uh, cheeseburgers or bacon, uh, per se. This is uh, Peter about to go to the house of Cornelius, uh, that it is okay to go into this man's house, uh, this God-fearing man that kind of, you know, believes as an ally but hasn't been converted, but, he, uh, but you are going to go to him and his household with the gospel, and that's okay. It might seem unclean, but go there with the gospel. Reminds me of with Jesus. People would say, oh, why, why does he let these sinners so close to him? Because he came to seek and save the lost. Or reminds me of... Uh, when Jesus said, well, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. Oh, but what about the crumbs? Okay, you could have the crumbs. And we'll take that. We're Gentiles. Uh, the crumbs of this uh, Jewish Savior are, are good enough uh, for me. And sometimes people project this concept onto this uh, reformed idea that God has the freedom to save uh, a sinner, like it's uh, some uh, intellectual or uh, emotionless thing. But it could be, but we don't know who the elect are. So it could be wildly exciting and adventurous uh, to share the gospel. Uh, we don't know who God, God is going to save. We just saw this in chapter 9. He saved hard-hearted Saul. Uh, sometimes the people that uh, you would least expect are those uh, who will hear that shepherd's voice when we share the gospel. Sometimes the people uh, who 
you might think that uh, I've got my Sunday tie on. I don't even want to be seen with them. Uh, but they're the people that are going to hear uh, that call. So Acts chapter 10. Uh, ESV title, uh, Peter and Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, uh, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, 
Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, for these, uh, this inspired uh, record of the uh, work of the Spirit that you have sent uh, and uh, the spread of the gospel and uh, the boldness of the, the witness of the persecuted church. We pray that uh, in the same way that us who have been Christians for a long time want to have some of that uh, uh, passion and fire that we remember from when we first became Christians. We also want our uh, entire church to have uh, some of that uh, eagerness for each other and for the word and for the lost uh, that we saw in these uh, very first days after Pentecost. Uh, Please uh, fill our hearts with uh, love as we give as we uh, are able uh, and uh, bless uh, our giving for the growth of your church as you promised. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.
Amber. Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 361. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. 361. Thank you, Blake, Amber, and Church. <laughs> Indeed, I hope you know of Christ as Savior. We've already read about His majestic power, His redemptive work, and we're going to look at this exposition from the book of Hebrews. Our focus will be chapter 7. I invite you to turn there. And we're going to focus specifically today on the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7. Last week our focus was on verse 26 from Hebrews 7. Christ is a fitting high priest as it's mentioned. Remember the context here of the book of Hebrews. This is a, essentially a sermon to Jews who had come to Christ, and yet they had the anticipation, if you will, and the thought that they might go back to Judaism. And the preacher warns them that you would be leaving the living God, 
to go back to Judaism. And I mentioned before, that's the context of it, but by way of application, you say, well, I don't have a temptation to go to Judaism. I was never part of it. It would be anything other than Christ. Any other religious system, religious order, idea, or ideology, whether it's a secular idea. Because Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And this preacher here in Hebrews emphasizes that fact of Jesus' work as mediator more than any other passage in the Bible. And particularly here where we're at, 7, 8, and 9. We left off at verse 26 last week, and I just want to reiterate that again. If you'll, you'll look here in describing Jesus as our high priest, it says he's holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. To holy means simply to be set apart, to be of the highest order. Innocent, no, no guilt, no guilt in him. Unstained, that is, he came, he took on human flesh. He was in the world, but the world never corrupted him. It never defiled him. It never stained him. And there is a distinct separation. Yes, he walked among sinners, and yet he is separate. That is, he is a class in of himself in his perfection. Ultimately exalted. And as the preacher of Hebrews began his exaltation of Christ, he mentions that he is, when he finished his work, he's seated at the majesty on high. That's his perfect exaltation in glory. All of these aspects, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted, These are perfectly demonstrated by Jesus Christ because he is indeed God incarnate. They are expressions of his divine nature. But beloved, remember, these are distinctions to which we are called as well as we follow Christ, as we take on the name Christian. It means to follow Christ, and those are some characteristics by which through his work we will ultimately be conformed to not perfection in this life but this is certainly the direction that will ultimately be realized holy this is why we call the people of God saints innocent in that Christ took on our guilt he atoned for our sin there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus if you're outside of Christ Jesus you have much condemnation and you you have guilt that needs to be dealt with you are corrupted by all that is in this world and Christ has overcome the world ultimately there will be a great separation from those that are in absolute rebellion against God and those that are submitting to him as Lord. Glorification is the final state of those that are in Christ. We don't deserve any of this, but it it is a beautiful state to which we will all achieve, not through our merit, but through Christ and his work and his work alone. 
you don't have to turn there. I can read it for you since you're in Hebrews. But a passage as you might be familiar with, it follows Romans 8.28, which we know very well, many of us, that God works for good, those things, whatever might occur in life, for those that love God and who are indeed called to his purpose. And what what is his purpose? Verse 29 in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That is, he determined ahead of time. What, what did God determine ahead of time? He determined for those that are in Christ, who, who, who love God, who have been made a Christian, that he is predestined for them to be conformed to the image of his Son. What does the image of his Son look like? Well, this are some of the things that are enumerated here in Hebrews. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated, and exalted. All of this is God's doing so that Christ then would be the firstborn, that is, the, the, the preeminent one of, among many brothers. He has brought us indeed, adopted us into the family and called us children of God, and hence the thought of brothers. And here's the chain, often called the golden chain of redemption, because it is an unbreakable bond from the very beginning to the end. Verse 30 of Romans 8, those whom he predestined, those who he had determined ahead of time, what did he do? He called them. And when they hear his voice, they will answer. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and I know them and they will follow me. What does it look like to be the following Christ? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated and exalted. They will follow me. Those he called, he then also justified. That is, he declared absolutely righteous, no guilt, no condemnation. And those that he justified, declared righteous, he also glorified. All of it is Christ's work. That's the final state. That's the ultimate state of the Christian. I don't care what state you might be in. There's great rejoicing in Christ. And I hope that's a comfort for you. This week, we're going to move on and close out this chapter by focusing on verse 27 and verse 28. Because really, the author here of Hebrews kind of gives an introduction of really the next three chapters in which he's going to expand this very thought in a further way. And I invite you to to read the next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. All of this talks about Christ's work in an expansive way. This kind of functions here, verse 27 and 28 of our text, as an introduction to the convo on your own. There is only one who can accomplish it. It is Jesus Christ, and I pray that you know him. And he would also mention, as I would unfold and unpack this, that this is, would be superior than anything else because everything else is inferior and it would fail to meet that very objective. There are many mediators who preceded Jesus, and that's the point, not to diminish them. Some were called by God to do that, but their whole point and purpose was not to actually do the mediation, but to point to the one who would, and Christ has come. So where would you go other than to him? There would be 
people who come forward with their own revelation and their own idea and the concept that they would then be the mediator between God and man. They will be insufficient. They will not be superior. They'll be inferior, and they will fail to accomplish it. There is only one who has, only one who will ever, and that is Jesus Christ, a priest forever. That's how this text begins. So let's read it, and it's our, it just in our immediate context. Go to verse 17 of Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 17. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it is witnessed of him, then you are a priest forever. That's my point. See the word priest? Here, mediator. Forever. After the order of Melchizedek, as we have unpacked in previous sermons. For on the one hand, a former commandment is then, note the word, set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the, those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let us pray. Father, I pray our thoughts and minds would be drawn to this one, Jesus Christ, a perfect mediator. May we, through the very work of Christ, be drawn near to you. May characteristics of our life be exemplified, even in this life, though not perfectly, but in a way which reflects your work in us. Make us holy, innocent, unstained, separated, and, and exalt us, not in, in ourself, but in Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
As I mentioned, this setup here in verse 26 is quite a high standard. It's a high bar which you will not be able to get over on your own. I hope you recognize that. It is so high that many attempt to redefine it, to to lower it, to make it achievable. But it's not. It's not achievable on your own. It is only achievable through Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ, if you'll notice, who sacrifices in his work, verse 27. And his sacrifice is done one time, singly. It's his death on the cross when he offers up himself, verse 27. Their idea was, well, we're, we're going to engage in, in other rituals. But those rituals are not the reality. They only pointed to the reality, which is Jesus Christ, this once-for-all sacrifice. John Owen comments here, The old sacrifices had a twofold defect in their number, and in their inefficiency. The number is that it was more than one. It was continual. And then the fact that it's continual, it's ineffective. He goes on to say, but the sacrifice in comparison of Christ is singular, and it is incomparable. It was offered once for all, and it alone was sufficient to expiate all sins and establish a perpetual and eternal righteousness. This is why Christ is the only mediator. In their case, they look for mediation from other sources. They would be be, um, inefficient, ineffective, if you will. It couldn't accomplish it, and the very number of it, that is, daily or continually, demonstrates that. Here he's comparing in verse 27 the Levitical priesthood with Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. This idea of repeatedly implies something that would happen again and again and again in a contrast to obviously here something that occurs once. It would also emphasize the sacrifices of the and religious aspects of the Levitical system, that it, is, that it is ongoing. It is not resolved, if you will. It is indefinite that it's ongoing continually. It doesn't have an end, as opposed to Christ's once for all. And finally, that it would imply a temporary nature to the sacrifices from the, from the very onset that there would be some limitations. That's why they had to be done again and again. His point that he's emphasizing here is that all that comes in in this manner is simply a ritual. Christ is the reality. 
He's going to expand on that in chapter 10, and we'll detail it in days ahead. But if you want to turn there, go ahead, chapter 10 in Hebrews. Because I just want to emphasize the, 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 the point that he's making here, the truth compared to the, that which is symbol, the, the reality versus the, versus the ritual. He phrases it that way in chapter 10 as he's going to expand on this very idea. It begins this way, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Notice here this idea of shadow versus the the substance, right? The, The true, that is Christ, the true reality that will come to which all of these rituals pointed to. It can never buy, he would go on and say, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's the ineffectiveness of it. It's not going to accomplish atonement, and it can't accomplish atonement. That's what he's saying. They're just pointing to someone who actually would accomplish it, and it would be Jesus Christ. And he makes that very point in verse 2. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer need any consciousness of sins. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. And that's the difficulty about it. They go. They engage in this ritualistic activity, but nothing is really resolved. It, it, it points to a need for a resolution. And can I tell you this? The resolution has come. It's Jesus Christ. And to even, as, our, as Roman Catholics might do, they, they attempt to represent this. It isn't represented. It, it, Christ isn't sacrificed in the Eucharist at Mass, when they meet on a regular basis. Christ has died once, once for all. And that one death is sufficient. As Christ on the cross said these very words, it is finished. Does it need to be represented again and again and again? Why not? Verse 4, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It was never set up for that. Their sins were not atoned by the sacrifices they did. Their sins were were not paid for by the rituals they were engaged in. All of those things were set up as a symbol for that one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Consequently, he would say, verse 5, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. What do you mean no pleasure? God told them to do it. That is, the point here is that these aren't accomplishing the atonement. They're just symbols of it. Then he said, Behold, 
I have come to do your will, O God, is written in the scroll of the book, that is, predetermined ahead of time, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. We'll make emphasis of that in a minute. But keep that in mind, because that concept is repeated as well, this uh, supersession, if you will. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That sanctification is the idea of being made holy. Being made holy before God, it is accomplished only one way, and that is through the death of Jesus Christ. This one who takes away the sin of the world. And he does this one time, once for all. And every priest, verse 11, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Doesn't accomplish it. Only Christ. But when Christ had offered for all time... A single sacrifice, then he sat down at the right hand of God. See, this is pointing all the way back to the very beginning in chapter 1 when he says, when he had made atonement for our sin, he did what? He sat down at the majesty on high. That is another way to emphasize the idea of its completeness and its, the idea that it is done. It is accomplished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christ is king. He is king right now. Confess him as Lord and recognize it. Because as certain as his death, as certain as that is, so will those who are in rebellion against him receive their recompense, a reward, which is judgment. That's what it, the imagery of this footstool under his feet is. Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't make him Lord. We recognize. And then he'll go on to get to the point we're making here. For by single offering then, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All that preceded the cross are sanctified set apart, made holy, perfect, will be glorified in before God through this one sacrifice of Christ. All of those after who would come after this point in time are also sanctified by this one. This is the only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And it is by this one offering that it is actually accomplished. That's his purpose. That's his point. Religious practices, beloved, will not atone for your sin. I'm not diminishing religious practices. I think you should engage in many practices that we would classify as religious. The practice of reading scripture, 
of praying, of meditating, the practices of coming and being with God's people and singing and worshiping together. These are good things, but they're not going to bring about merit before God. And if that's what you're trusting in, well, I'm, I'm engaged in, in, in I, and I do a certain amount of this and that, it isn't going to accomplish anything. It is only through Jesus Christ. That is the reality. Those things may help you grow in grace and the knowledge of him, and we do encourage that, but it will not bring about merit before God. It is only the work of Christ and that work once for all. He's comparing specifically here the Levitical priesthood, which was not efficient to take away sin, only Christ. Spurgeon comments, the ministry of Aaron could be counted by years. The priesthood of Christ could only be measured by eternity. The sacrifice of Aaron could only remove part of the transgressor's sin. The offering of Christ takes away the entire load. The atonement of Aaron did not affect the conscience. The blood of Christ purges it from dead works. Back to our text in verse 27. It focuses on Christ's work, that he does it, and he does it himself. Yes, it is a singular event, once for all, but notice that it is all of Christ. It is his work. He does it himself. He does this in a voluntary way. You see the phrase there, he did this, in verse 27. He did this. This speaks to the voluntary aspect of Christ who laid down his life. We read earlier in the gospel reading, if you remember, in John chapter 6, Jesus was not ready to lay down his life at that time. John speaks much of Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. What hour? His hour to die. They wanted to make him king. Why not? Because he could feed thousands of people just by speaking, and it's done. So they wanted him to be king based on the fact that they were really interested in food. (laughs) They weren't interested so much in the bread of life, but in the symbols of it. Jesus Christ lays down his life, and he does this in a voluntary way. I'll read this for you from John chapter 10, a passage that you should be familiar with. Where Jesus says in verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. It is Christ's work. He does this. And one of my, I stuck this in here because this is, this is a, This is a passage that almost makes me weep every time I see it because in context, you would think he came for his own. 
that is those within Judaism. But Jesus will say clearly in John chapter 10, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's you and me. He says, I, I, I must bring them in also. Do you know why you love Christ? He did it. It's his work. I know from your perspective what you, you do and, and so forth, you, you, respond, you believe, but that's a response to Christ's work. He is the one that is glorified in the accomplishment of the atonement for the sinner. He says, I will bring them in. I must bring them in. And they will listen to my voice. It isn't an... A lot of people throw this out there like, well, you know, um, this is... It's all on you whether you you hear or not. The reason you hear is because of Christ. It's his work. He did this. I have nothing to boast about. It is by grace you're saved, through faith. It is the gift of God, all of it, including the faith. I would describe faith. Faith is true belief. It's really yours. That's what you must do. You must repent. But why do you do it? It is because of the mediatorial work of Christ. Do you know him? It is the only one who would accomplish this. And this is accomplished by some ritual. It is accomplished by the reality of Jesus Christ who does this. He's going to bring them in, it says in John chapter 10. They will listen to my voice. He will accomplish what he desires. And there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. That's Jesus Christ. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up Again, this charge I have received from my Father. The, the point is, he's talking about the very decree of God from the very beginning. This was always his plan and purpose. Evil men did exactly what they wanted to do. They crucified the Lord of glory, but he superintended all of it to accomplish his purposes. And, beloved, you may not fully understand how that works. It's real simple. Christ laid down his life. This is what he has said. Ultimately, he has done this, and he has offered up himself. So he did it, verse 27, and he did what? He offers up himself. Here, you, if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and then I'll jump back to 1 Peter 1, or otherwise just listen for the sake of time. In verse 27 of Hebrews 7, it says he did this. What did he do? He offered up himself. That is the greatest gift you could ever have. The greatest gift God could ever give you is not a new house, not a new car, not a bunch of food. It's Christ, and that's what you need. That's what was portrayed in in John chapter 6. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the very mouth of God. That's what you need. Ultimately, you need Christ, and this is what God gives He gives himself. 
Christ. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And what was the purpose? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He doesn't just rescue you. It's an entire reclamation process so that your life would be oriented in a totally different direction. What direction would that be? I don't know. Let's try holy. Let's try righteous. Let's try innocent. Let's try unstained. An ultimately glorified state before him in perfection. This is all Christ's work. It is Christ that accomplished it back... If you're, if you're in First Peter, you can drop back to the first chapter in verse 18, speaking about our salvation, that you were once, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's where your faith and hope would be in Christ and Christ alone. This work that Christ would do accomplishes what he determined to do. It it is a work that is superior to everything else. There is none that is comparable. But our preacher must make a comparison here back in chapter 7 and verse 28 as he fleshes this out and talks about the superiority of Christ's work In verse 28 of chapter 7, it says, The law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest. This this man in their weakness, what's their weakness that Christ doesn't have? Their weakness, and by the way, any others that attempt to be a mediator other than Jesus Christ is weak. Weak in what way? Well, a number of ways. Number one, they're sinful. The condition of man, all of them, even the priests, in their best condition, are weak since the fall. They are sinful. It's written. None righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans three ten and 12. What do you mean? I think people do some good things. They don't do perfect things. And there's always mixed motives in what people do. I think I do some good things from time to time. But if I really examine them, they're always mixed with the flesh. As much as I want to accomplish things by the power of the Spirit, maybe, maybe... Uh, Some aspects of it 
that, that are truly for the Spirit. But, but, but ultimately, it's almost like you're, 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 you're picking up a clean handkerchief with, with dirty hands. It's, it's the stain of the flesh. Paul would describe that in detail in Romans chapter 7. And I couldn't hold a candle to the righteousness of Paul. And his response in examining his own self, this is a redeemed person, Paul. His response to looking at his own remaining sin that hasn't been taken away since he's not yet glorified before God, and he would die. And that's one of the ways you would know that. His response to himself is simply this, Oh, wretched man that I am. Right? It, 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 in that sense, it, it's no one is perfectly righteous other than this righteous one, this mediator, Jesus Christ. So go look at any other source. It isn't going to accomplish it. All have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. Ultimately, that's what it is. The perfection of who God is, that's what his glory is. His glory is the beauty of his divine perfections. By perfections, I mean absolutely perfect in every aspect. We, we couldn't achieve that level. And the problem that makes us weak in that regard is then ultimately death. And these priests, these other sources of saviors, they'll all die. And they don't have the authority and the power of Christ to rise and conquer death. But Jesus Christ does. And it is him who is eternal life. They're weak because of their sinful state. They're weak because of their imperfections, as I've mentioned. Affections, attitudes, and then ultimately actions that are stained with sin. In the end, the weaknesses of these priests that are mentioned and any mediator other than Christ, they're all temporary. That's his point, too. Christ is permanent, and hence this once for all. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. James would say, what's your life? It's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's the reality of the world in which we live. I, I, I hate loss. I hate death. But Christ has given life. And in him you can live eternally in a glorified state. Another aspect of his work, back to our text in chapter 7 and verse 28. Notice here it has this phrase, this word of the oath. We've mentioned that before. Christ's work is superior because of its, its strength as opposed to the weaknesses of anything else. And then you have this word of the oath in verse 28. It says it came later than the law. And that might be difficult in that phraseology, but we've looked at this idea of the oath as well. It says it comes later than the law. This, this oath is primarily this testimony and this expression about Jesus Christ, 
our mediator, taken from Psalm 110 and verse 4, as we would mark it, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's God's oath. God who cannot change his mind, God who cannot lie, has also made an oath and he has sworn it. He has guaranteed it. And if you remember, if you're in 7 of Hebrews, you can flip back to chapter 6. We've already discussed this, but if you weren't with us or we need a bit of a reminder, just drop back a little bit as he talks about this oath in a, in a greater way in verse 17 of chapter 6. <clears throat> God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope before us. God could say it, and that would be sufficient, because God cannot lie, and anything he said would be sufficient. But he does say that he swore it as well. He guarantees it, if you will, with an oath. So, so the two unchangeable things, God said it, and then he guarantees it. And, have I, and I um, mentioned this before, that that guarantee, that, that oath that he has given, has been then ultimately sealed with the Holy Spirit, to which we, those that are in Christ then are sealed unto the day of redemption. It is every believer in Christ then have been, has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what came later than the law. His oath, his promise, and the sealing of the Spirit. And what does that do? What is this idea in verse 28 of coming later? How does that affect? God has promised in eternity past how redemption would take place through the Son, who would mediate on our behalf. This decree would unfold in time. That unfolding is something we refer to as the very providence of God. You had shadows that, that pointed to what was coming, but now the reality is here. And I think I have time to mention a couple of these. I'll try to be quick. You don't have to flip along, but if you want to, it's just what, what is going to unfold in the next few chapters, just to give you a head start on it. Hebrews 8, 5. Those things that came before, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 8.13 of Hebrews. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So, so, so see his argument? They're wanting to go back to that which is obsolete. They're wanting to go back to that which is a copy and a shadow. The realities here, chapter 9 and, and verse 11. Christ appears, the priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent. He's showing the superiority of Christ. Chapter 10, he refers to it again, as we've already read, since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. And verse 9 of chapter 10 
Behold, I have come to do your will, Christ says. He has done away with the first in order to establish the second. This new covenant then supersedes the old covenant. It is done away with in the sense that it is fulfilled and accomplished in Christ and Christ alone. No one has ever fulfilled all the requirements of the law. They have all failed because of their weaknesses. Even the priests who had to offer sacrifices had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, for their own failure. There is only one who fulfilled all righteousness, that is, who merited it. It is Jesus Christ. And by coming in time, as this is then unfolded, Christ has established then this new covenant in Christ. He has fulfilled it. He has accomplished it. If you want to turn, you can look in Galatians chapter 3. Paul is dealing with the church of Galatia. And they struggled as well, like these Hebrews, and trying to hang on to some of those rituals rather than look to the reality. Christ has superseded this old covenant and established the new. We, we read it, by the way, providentially just came along in chapter 10, as Paul read out in Acts about how there was a change, a distinction. And that's what he's talking about here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse, I'll drop down to verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because they're not keeping it. Cursed be everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And again, what they would do and what people often do is think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. Well, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And the reality is you're guilty of a lot more. It's evident that is no one then is justified before God by the law. The righteous instead, how will you be right? You'll live by faith. That is trusting the one who has fulfilled all righteousness. That is Christ. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ then redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, then might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That indeed is that guarantee. Those that are in Christ then are not under the law in that sense, not cursed by the law, but has been given grace through Christ. See Romans six fourteen. None of this is suggesting that we don't obey God. None of this is suggesting that we don't obey his moral law. But that ceremonial law that pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ is finished. It's accomplished. It's accomplished by Jesus Christ. And our righteous standing then never came about by our fulfilling the law 
It comes about through Christ who bore our sin on his body on the tree. Attempting to gain merit through adherence to the old covenant is blasphemy. It blasphemies Christ. It blasphemes the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit who would reveal it. Our obedience then to God's moral law is brought about by faith and is expression and it is an expression of the filling that is the control of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and the fruit of the Spirit that is an expression of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer it is not of the flesh back to our text in verse in chapter 7 I'll finish with this in verse 28. This is superior to this Levitical system and to anything else, by the way. In verse 28, notice the phrase, he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The the appointing has to do with God's decree. God's determination before the world began. This is the idea of foreordination, predestination. All of that has to do with God's determination before the world began that he would send a son to redeem man. And this is the only way that it would be accomplished. Before the world began, a son who would redeem us from our sin. And those that are in Christ worship him. See Revelation 13, 8. And say, worthy is the lamb. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. This is who God has appointed. He has appointed Christ and I... I'll refer you back to the first chapter because I just love reading this section about the Son as the preacher of Hebrews begins this way, in the last days he's spoken to us by his Son. That, that's, don't, don't miss that. By his Son, whom he, and here's the word, appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Who is this son? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know him? That is the only mediator between God and man. It was determined by God from the beginning. And in these last days, he has providentially brought about the son to live to die, and to rise. And those who have their faith in him and him alone will also rise again. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will grant us a, a sure hope in our steadfast anchor, Jesus Christ, in the perfection that he has accomplished forever. May our trust be in Christ, in Christ alone. 
I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment now to respond directly to Christ this way he has spoken to you. Take a moment and think on these things. A.W. Tozer on this passage remarked, The sacrifice of Christ was final and perfect. It settled for all time the sin question. And it established an everlasting righteousness that satisfies the demands of a holy God. There is no need for any further sacrifice or offering. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. And I would say, Amen. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's all stand and turn to number 28 in our hymnals. To God be the glory, number 28. Sing the first and the last.
Crane will be dismissed. Gracious Father, we are indeed thankful for the great things that you have done through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God who gives us victory through him. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, <clears throat> that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, we also pray now as we are about to depart to the fellowship hall and to partake of uh, the food that has been provided, that you would bless those who prepared it and bless it to our bodies and strengthen us with it now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.